0: Hey there, I'm Tara Larson, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I head up Intercom's early stage program for startups, and a company that I've been keeping my eye on is the fast-growing fintech company Brex. Now, if you live near a startup hub of some sort, you've probably seen their billboards and out-of-home takeovers. However, you might not know how Shakespeare and McDonald's have also played a role in their story. So, this week, I invited their CFO, Michael Tannenbaum, to come onto the show and tell us all about their growth strategy. Now, Michael is the rare CFO who also leads up marketing, which makes him the perfect person to talk us through the company's trajectory. And what a trajectory thus far. In the past year, they've grown from 30 people to a 200 plus person company. Just this past June, they completed a fresh round of funding, bringing their valuation to $2.6 billion. In our conversation, Michael shares about the strategies that have been most impactful for growing their word of mouth, the attribution model that's the engine for their marketing strategy, and Brex's long-term plans to disrupt the credit card industry vertical by vertical. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to check out others by subscribing to our show on the podcast player of your choice. So let's jump right in and hear from Michael himself. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tara. I remember first meeting you and Enrique in August 2018, so just about a year ago, and your team was, what, 30 people? Really small, and we were joking about how people were confusing you with uh, Brexit, and you were—
1: Common, common, common mistake.
0: Right, and now, though, that's all changed. Just one year, your company's grown to, what, 200 people, a $2.6 billion valuation, and I feel like everyone knows Brex.
1: Well, that's good. That's what we're, you know, that's our job to make sure everybody knows us.
0: Yeah, well, it's been an exciting year. So we're looking forward to digging in how you managed to achieve all that in such a short period of time. But let's start, let's go back to where it all started. Um, Tell us about your path to becoming the CFO at Brex.
1: Sure. So I actually started in kind of a Wall Street background, private equity. I worked at a company called SoFi, which is an online student lender and has other products. I'm sure they'd like me to say that and they, I met our CEO Enrique, who you mentioned, uh, and he told me about this credit card business he wanted to build. I was interested in starting a company from scratch, and I had actually managed the corporate card at SoFi as the VP of finance for a bit, and so I knew the opportunity, came and joined uh, super early.
0: Yeah, and that's super interesting. So you, you had definitely had relevant expertise, but really love that you, you made the transition from the traditional industry being on Wall Street to tech. I mean, that's a night and day kind of experience and responsibility set change to dive into an early stage startup?
1: Early stage is, is tough. Nothing's set up. I remember when I was going with Enrique to raise our Series B, we went to the to an investor and uh, everything, they had fresh coffee, everything was laid out, it was super organized, and I thought like, oh, this used to be my world. And now I come into the office Nothing works. People can't set up Microsoft Office. Everything's broken. People are complaining. So it's a little bit of a different life.
0: But that's exciting because you're able to kind of be in control and drive all that change. Thinking about that, you knew you were getting into something different. What made you trust the founder's vision and make that jump?
1: You know, I think I was really aligned. They wanted to build something really big. They understood technology, and they had a unique respect for regulatory and compliance. I think what actually made me most comfortable was when they said they are building their system like a ledger, so it can't be messed up. I had seen things go haywire, And so I was, I when they said that to me, I was like, okay, this could be for me.
0: So yeah, they were able to find a way to meet you in the middle yes. and bridge that gap. Zooming forward, you joined the company about two years ago, and you've been breaking all the typical timelines for growth, incredible name recognition, marketing tactics that span some traditional partnerships to very disruptive formats in really visible ways. Let's let's talk about that. Like, how have you been able to grow your brand and build the word of mouth momentum?
1: Sure. So I think the first rule of marketing we've broken is having the CFO run it. And I started running it right away because we needed someone to. And I had seen success in marketing at SoFi. So I thought, okay, I will do this. Now we have an ex- experienced team. But at the time, it was just me. Um, And I think the first thing that we tried to do is we took advantage of the fact that we had a physical card, and so you have that every day. And if you're a financial services company, particularly a lending company like where I came from, you crave something that allows you to be in front of your customer every day. You lend to someone, you know, you do it once, and then they kind of pay you back but don't care about you. And so we had this physical card in front of our customer, and that kind of gave us the idea that we could build a brand. And we could do that early. And so we did some things that typical startups and typical fintech startups wouldn't do. A big notable one has been outdoor advertising, which we can talk more about. Um, Out of Home was successful for SoFi, and we really doubled down on it at Brex. And um, I think we've been really, really good at ground game, which means we've sort of blanketed the ecosystem of early-stage accelerators, um, early-stage venture capital firms, And kind of got, been able to, from an entire startup lifecycle perspective, across all different types of marketing, stay in front of the
0: customer. And how much of that marketing were you already doing before you actually launched the product?
1: Sure. So this was a big problem for me because I was getting married. (laughs) And I was married in April 18. And I was, you know, I was going back to New York. Everybody was going to be asking my wife, you know, what her dopey husband did and i was working at this company that sounded like brexit we had no rank on search we we had not announced to the world no crunchbase profile nothing and we we started with last touch and so last touch is means you know how did the customer get to you did they come through email marketing did they come through search did they come through pr did they come through a paid channel did they come through referral or word of mouth mm-hmm. so we sort of just we had last touch attribution in place to be able to identify where, you know, using mainly our website architecture, where did the customers come from?
0: Where were you seeing your customers coming from?
1: Is it surprising? I think that for us, it was super important to understand the value of word of mouth, because as you indicated, Tara, there was a lot of people talking about Brex. And one of the first things we, we wanted to understand is, well, how do we track word of mouth and sort of earned, you know, earned traffic? And a lot of times... That you know from press, it'll be from a website that is not Brex, but they'll come there and not Google, mm-hmm. right? And we started getting that, but we weren't able to track. Well, okay, but where are these people really coming from? And so we actually added to our application flow an optional question: How did you hear about Brex? And about sixty percent of the people told us, and we made it optional because you never want to ruin your funnel you don't by slow asking, down the sign no. process. Right. But it was so valuable to hear people were saying, "Well, I heard about it from an investor." right? I heard about it from a friend. So we added a referral program and a paid referral program. And then we also started, we added a huge initiative to go after all the venture, sort of like AWS, go after all the venture firms and all of the accelerators and sort of build this ground game.
0: So what I'm hearing is that you you started at the very beginning creating a product that solved problems for your customers, but then at the same time, you were laser focused on understanding where were the customers that you were winning? Where were they coming from? And how could you leverage that for growth?
1: Right. How do we double down on the channels that work? So one thing that didn't work early was paid. paid. Digital paid was super hard to get right. I think we have a smaller market. So at least initially, we were totally focused on startups. There aren't that many of them. And the thing is, is that they're not usually searching for a credit card when they are they're not searching for one that's just for startups, so then you're bidding against American Express on the term credit card, very expensive. So it's expensive H- paid high intent search, term, and startups
0: yes. don't like clicking on the paid ads. Correct. So you mentioned a few different channels and things that you learned through the attribution model. One of them that has been making a splash is your rewards program. Now, if you're in the Bay Area, you've likely seen the the billboards or other ads that promote the Over $100 million you've been able to give back to startups. That's incredible. That's super catchy. As someone who works in the startup space, I want to get a slice of those rewards. How were you able to build such a powerful rewards network? And how have those partnerships been important
1: to us? Yes, totally. Well, the inspiration for the uh, Billboard campaign came from the McDonald's, Billion Customers Serve. They used to do that as, you know, Tara. We're both (laughs) from New England. We know what goes down at the McDonald's. You've got me smiling here. Yeah, Yeah. so we, you know, I think McDonald's is probably everywhere. But we definitely, uh, I remember they sort of said a billion customers served and had that sort of counter. So that was the creative inspiration. But the reason we've been able to offer such lucrative rewards for startups is we've done what people in the broad industry call group purchasing, which means we take the fact that, we take advantage of the fact that we have this specific vertical that's all buying, mainly software. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Intercom is a perfect example. So many of our customers are buying Intercom that we can actually go to someone like you, a la our meeting, you know, a year ago when we were small, and say we represent all these companies, and if you give us a discount, then you know we can pass that along to our companies in the form of rewards. It's great for Intercom because Intercom would get you know new startups on using them. Mm -hmm. And it's great for Brex because we're able to pass on a discount to our customers. And I think we've done that with a number of software vendors, probably most notably AWS, because AWS is just so expensive that they're able to offer a pretty big discount to our customers.
0: The partnerships too have enabled you to align yourself with these really established tech companies. How has that been helpful for marketing? Is that part of the strategy as well?
1: It is. I mean, I think with Brex, what we've tried to do is really do big, concentrated launches that add—we've always acted bigger than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we launched, we had, you know, paid media all over the city we in, in the form of outdoor and out of home. We had tons of press because we waited—basically combined two rounds into one announcement. So we seemed everywhere. We had, you know, we were on social. We did this big launch, but then when we when we did rewards, that was probably about four months after we launched the product. We all, we came out and we said, well, we have Amazon, we have WeWork, we have DoorDash, you know, we had, and I be, and we, I think we had, um, one other Salesforce? So we had some big names, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it was like, well, we're Brex, right? we have this dopey nothing. And we've got these huge companies. Yeah, you now know. you're
0: in the lineup with those really well-known brands that are household names and driving real results and impact for their customers. Totally.
1: So partnerships is important, for sure.
0: You mentioned that you've always acted like a larger company, and that's super important. Like, Do you think that's important for other founders? Like, What does that enable you to do?
1: I think it depends on the industry. In fintech, no one's dying to give their money to some— I mean, yeah, actually, I think it's pretty much— it matters in almost everything you do in the sense that it can be awkward. We'll talk about its implications for branding, but in terms of your product, I think it is super helpful to be considered stable and bigger than you are, because if you're in the B2B space, at least people are looking to you uh, and hoping that your product is going to be up and supported years in the future. I think in the consumer space, you know, it's a little bit different. People are willing to try a new brand and, you know. Yeah, where it's the,
0: transactional, right. a one-time purchase. Exactly. You're not but, planning for two, three, five years out.
1: But for B2B marketing, super valuable, I think. Um, on the branding side, I just like to talk about this because I think it's an, it's just a, something I've noticed with startups and something that Brex has gone through, which is when you're really small, it's hard to get branding right because people want to have these grand visions and you're three people in a room you know, hoping to get some traction. It's awkward to say, you know, we're changing the future of work. We're, you know, all these, you know, so we're the global standard for financial services and you're looking around, it's like, you you know, you've got to barely have a website. So I think that brand and that mission and what you're about, we started super clear. First corporate card for startups, tons of affinity around that. We were one of the first people to directly market to startups. People who work at a startup know they work at a startup. It really worked. But as, we, as we've gotten bigger, we've had to kind of broaden our product and broaden our messaging. And so that's been a bit of an evolution for Brex.
0: There are rumors, too, that while, of course, some of these businesses have shut down, startups come and go, and a lot of them also grow over time with they do. with you. So that's successful for your business. But of the ones that have shut down, I read the stat that no one has defaulted on their credit card payments. Can you, can you share any details about that? Because that's unbelievable. That is really different than the normal industry standards. It's definitely
1: different than the industry's perception of startups. It's kind of funny because people will ask us, oh, you know, what happens in a downturn? Everybody's hurt in a downturn, but one of the unique things about startups is that they're usually succeeding or failing totally separate from the economy. If you think about Intercom, right, when you guys started, Intercom got traction not because the aggregate spend on customer service software – was growing or, or shrinking, you guys, it, you either, it either worked or it didn't. And mm-hmm. so that's actually, it's almost its own ecosystem in some ways. And so even though we're in a great economy, there's plenty of startups failing all the time. I think that our underwriting model, however, has been able to, because we found we were so accurate in trying to use a bank account to underwrite startups,
0: mm-hmm.
1: bank account underwriting may not be the best for everything, but it's certainly the best for people that don't make money. So because otherwise, I mean, you can't underwrite based on the P&L yeah. or you'd never give anybody credit. And so I think <laughs> for us, you know, because we found a perfect way to underwrite these people, we've been able to get ahead of the failures and, and not lose money.
0: Yeah, and that just kind of circles back to like really being familiar with your customers and then aligning your your whole business strategy around solving problems for them and speaking to them.
1: Yeah, one of the things we've done that's really spoken to our customers is we launched a – blog pretty early that was very successful. And I think it was successful. It was originally written mainly by me about what it's like to try and set up all these things as a startup for the first time. I think when you're a CFO or an operations person, you go to a startup, you have to be an expert on payroll, office space, benefits, all of these things that I really didn't know that much about. Mm -hmm. And I set them up for the first time. And then I just wrote about it. And the differentiated insight was that everybody in a startup is searching, how do I set up payroll for a startup for the first time? And so when people are searching that, they're going to come to our content. So yes, maybe Gusto has an article about payroll, and maybe Intercom has an article about customer service and marketing software, and maybe somebody else has an article about benefits. But we kind of combined all of these things, and we got a lot of page rank because we just wrote honestly about our experiences, what vendors we selected, what we did.
0: Yeah, just in real time, you're capturing that experience and sharing what you're learning, which I think is a step that a lot of companies would overlook. Like you're trying to move really quickly, and if, if it's like the finding- real
1: world startup, right, <laughs> yeah. sort of.
0: Yeah, uh, it makes me think of that uh, like Gimlet Media podcast, too, where you're documenting your journey to start a podcast. It's, uh,
1: meta, it's a bit meta, yes. but it sounds That's like it's been effective.
0: Yes, it confused my wife,
1: though, because she was like, when did you become a blogger exactly? I thought I married a CFO. <laughs> and I said, listen, I'll do what we got to do.
0: I'm just going to pause the podcast there for a second to tell you that the Intercom Customer Service Trends Report 2024 is out now. We asked 2,000-plus customer service teams across the globe how they are meeting the challenges and opportunities of 2024. In it, you'll see this year's top five customer service trends, plus strategies to meet rising customer expectations. You can find the report at inter.com forward slash 2024 trends. Okay, back to today's episode. So, are you at a point now where you're tracking from that first introduction to Brex until the journey to when they sign up and then beyond? Sign up and then all the way until how much they're spending. So, right. how how would you build that multi-touch model? Last touch certainly that's there's a direct connection, mm. but how have you been following those customers and and building that in?
1: So, it's, you know, heavily based on the website and how they interact with that website over time or how they interact with other digital media that we have, whether it be paid ads or whether it be affiliate sites like Credit Karma. So we get a lot of information from the customer journey. And then we also get self-attested information when they tell us. And so we combine all that to understand the journey. We use a 40-20-40 model. So 40% for the first touch, 20% for everything in the middle, 40% for the last.
0: Okay. And is that where you started when you expanded past last touch?
1: Yes, we did. We have not played around with that too much. I think a lot of the time we've spent has been trying to make to get better at measuring the out of home that we do because out of home is one of the bigger parts of our budget, and so we want to make sure. I mean, out of there, home, what are some
0: examples of the out of home initiatives that you're running, just for our listeners?
1: Sure, I think out of home. So we do billboards, we do transit. We've done subway in New York City. All we've, the
0: things you're told not to do.
1: All the things you're told that are expensive and bad and wasteful. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can imagine we definitely had some board members emailing, mm-hmm. wondering, "What is this guy doing, and why is he spending so much money?" We actually didn't spend. It's not that expensive. It's a cheap way to get a lot of reach, and I think because back to that comment around how special it was to talk to startups and use the word startup in marketing, and because we put that outdoor in a city like San Francisco where everybody either works at a startup or knows someone that works at a startup, there was so much affinity around that term here, it really worked. And I think we've only really done this in other places where there's high concentration of whatever customer we're targeting. But we what I'm been.
0: hearing is it wasn't actually that expensive because it allowed you to guarantee that, you know, almost every startup in the Bay Area saw your advertisements, had at least an impression. And then how how did you track the impact? Because you, you said that's something you're looking to measure. Are there tools you're using? Or
1: I think the best way to get started is use either some version of your, you either have like a marketing analytics person, a data person, someone who's somewhat technical and can work, you know, you got to have, you work to basically parse the data. And I think a bunch of people uh, offer this, but you can parse the data and sort of figure out the uh, last touch attribution there. Where did that actual site visit come? And sort of through a combination of cookies, the pixels that you install from Facebook and Google, you sort of piece together this model. You can use a prepackaged one that comes from a vendor, like a HubSpot, or you can, you know, sort of build it yourself. I think the key is, is each time you add a new form of marketing, whether it's email, paid strategy, whether it's referral, you just make sure that you're able to attribute that and track it in your model.
0: So just, yeah, keep everything in your attribution model and then as you start learning from it, you add in the multiple layers.
1: Right. And so when you create a campaign, at least for us, what we we set it up, it's sort of campaign level. So we create an email campaign, and that campaign is associated with certain tracking, mm-hmm. which means we can tr- – so we actually – and I didn't get into this before, but we have five levels of attribution within these – multi within each touch, right? The level one is marketing, sales, or BD, so sort of okay. the broader. And then you get into – paid, out-of-home, investor channel, sales, marketing versus SDR type mm-hmm. thing. And then from there, you get into act- all the way down to level five would be the specific campaign. So meaning if you came from a you know product announcement campaign May 11th, 2019, that would be one, that would be the the most granular, yeah, very level. granular, but that would roll up into email marketing, which or that would roll up into email campaigns that are branded, and then from or to existing customers versus you know in funnel versus new versus you know, and then it would roll up into email, which would roll up into outbound, which would roll up into marketing, right mm-hmm. into all that.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So yeah, you're looking first at the broad categories of like what's working, what directionally should we be investing more in, and then drilling deep into the individual initiatives that's right. that are driving the most impact. So I think that that's great. Yeah. The advice then is for other companies is to just start, track everything you can, have discipline with those weekly kind of funnel meetings. And when you're reviewing your data, break it down into the different categories so that you're getting a complete picture.
1: That's right. I think that is the message. And also, I think the message is also... It, because if you're tracking everything, it actually lets you try more things. If you know that you're going to learn something, and you know you can either check whether it works or not, there's nothing wrong with trying.
0: That speaks to us at Intercom. We're a big culture for experimentation, data-driven learning, and, and it does. It opens up these possibilities to try something, to A/B test, to to see what's working, and to learn from those experiences. How how does that fit into where you're going next? So. We know you're successful in capturing kind of the startup, corporate card, market. You've launched the e-commerce card. You've launched a life sciences card now. You're really looking at some of these initiatives to expand your total addressable market. That's right. You're no longer just a card for startups. That's right. You're going new places and finding these new segments. What's your thinking behind the expansion strategy, and why are you moving so quickly?
1: Actually, my parents asked me that. They're like, oh, I'm nervous. I see on Facebook breakfast everywhere. It seems like you're doing too much, Mikey.
0: Yeah, are you pivoting? What's what's going on? I
1: know they worry, um, but that's okay. You've got your support team. I do, but I think that what we're focused on is- To your parents,
0: he looks like he's doing okay. We're just asking the tough questions.
1: Thank you. What I'd say is we are focused on the segments for which the traditional financial services market and products work least well. So if you think mm-hmm. about where we've started, startups, obvious. E-commerce is another thing. Everything about retail had moved online except financial services, right? People are on Shopify. People are selling over the Internet. They're delivering via packaging. Everything's changing. But the financial services offerings for retail companies did not evolve. And so that was a huge area for us to enter. Life sciences, again, face many of the same issues, as do startups younger or, you know, raise lots of money, younger companies, newly started, need, spend a lot of money on card, need rewards tailored to them. So that was a natural one. I think where you'll see us continue to evolve are other areas where you have these industries and these these types of, of companies and the existing financial products aren't doing anything to recognize the unique attributes of their business.
0: What what type of industries are you thinking about?
1: I mean, one that comes to mind often is nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Very sort of similar in some ways to startups because sort of raise money, often don't make any money and spend the money. And so that financial model, that type of cash flow is not well understood by existing lenders. Mm-hmm. So that's one where I think seems very natural.
0: Another one is the professional services segment. So you heard it here first, Brex for nonprofits and Brex for professional services. Watch this space.
1: Watch it. Yes, I have not, no promises, but those are two areas I might think about.
0: Has this always been a part of the Brex strategy? When you are launching, were you like, we're going to start with this one segment to gain some traction and awareness, but you've had this in your back pocket that these will follow? Or is it something that these opportunities have come up? I, I mean, we know how customers. this game
1: goes, Tara. I would say, look, I think we, we, never, <laughs> we never thought we would only be for startups because right. our founders are extremely ambitious. I, was, I grew up, I thought I was ambitious. They're ambitious, okay? I'm, I'm not as ambitious as them. They're, they're very, very ambitious.
0: Serial founders Sh- in their early 20s. Right. Shakespeare
1: used, says, ambition should be made of sterner stuff. That's a quote from Julius Caesar. Um, but the point is that they are very ambitious, and I think we never wanted just startups. And so we always knew we would go outside of startups. I think one thing that people often say is write what you know. And they knew e-commerce because they had done that down in Mm -hmm. Brazil. And so that was a natural second place for us to go. And there was a big need. And so I think for us, as we started doing that and thinking about the marketing, me and Enrique, um, our CEO, as we were thinking about how do we message this launch, this this second product, this e-commerce, when we did that, we, that's where we sort of came up with this. Well, we can make it about, just like we had the first credit card for a startup, we can do that for e-commerce too. And that's going to be really special and powerful because we're talking to the customer mm-hmm. in a way that nobody has done before. And I think that's where this sort of overall strategy of vertical started to emerge. So I think we always knew we were going somewhere. I'm not going to pretend that we had a crystal ball.
0: That makes perfect sense. Yeah, you're now leveraging not only your experience from your past work, but also what you've learned works at Brex. And so my last question on that would be, you're a 200-person team today. That's certainly a lot larger than you were a year ago, but it's still pretty small to have, you know, three launches in the last year and a half, multiple audiences and verticals you're supporting. How do you manage that? Like when you're going after a new vertical do you actually allow the same team that's built up that expertise to now flip to a different vertical or do you find new people to, to run with sure. the new launch?
1: Well, I think what we've done that's been smart is we set up a lot of our system and infrastructure, and you probably got that as a theme from the conversation the right way the first time. So for us to modify our rewards program or our underwriting or our statements, it's not that much technical work. So on, it, sort of at the, at the company level, it doesn't seem like we have all these products because everything's sort of working together mm-hmm. and we've set it up with this idea. And so it's a little bit about a go-to-market strategy and BD and marketing. And I think that, you know, we have, we've started to implement the GM structure. So we had a GM kind of manage our go-to-market. He actually had run growth with me and kind of been the first marketing hire with me. So I think that was an interesting experience for us both.
0: And so now, yeah, for each vertical, you'll have a GM that kind of leads that, and ultimately roads lead back to the core platform that's and the right. problems you're solving. That's right. That's that's exciting. Well, we're gonna stay tuned for a few more launches in the near future, at the very least. Please now, do
1: keep your eyes open in San Francisco. You'll see eyes open in
0: San Francisco, and you'll see Brex. You certainly have learned a lot. Had a really effective growth and expansion strategy. Presumably, you've also made some mistakes. Are there any pitfalls for people to watch out for? anything that you know you think is important to be cautious of when you're growing a company
1: so every time that you do something because other people tell you that this is how it should be or it seems industry standard but it's against your intuition i would say follow your intuition especially in the beginning where you're just trying to figure out what works you know we had heard that paid was super valuable and we and you know people were saying you know what's your paid marketing and You know, I didn't feel I didn't really want to get into it yet, but we felt sort of like we had to. Mm -hmm. And I think that was ended up being a little bit of a waste of time. I talked about our first failed podcast. You know, we tried to imitate masters of scale. And I think that it just, you know, there wasn't really room in the market for another startup podcast. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we, you know, we were just sort of looking at what other people had done that had been successful without thinking fully through whether it was relevant for our audience.
0: As you're continuing on your, your story for growth, what other startups do you look for for inspiration or who else should our customers use as a role model for these sorts of initiatives?
1: One company that I think is super impressive has been Zillow. I think the way that they've, they've been really strategic over time about the way that they've used marketing and kind of and data in probably somewhat untraditional ways, they you know, started as by kind of indexing all the homes and mm-hmm. really playing off the way that people have so much affinity for ho- their house and how much it's worth. Mm-hmm. And I think over time, they created a marketplace for other services. And now they've started to pivot into actually buying the houses competing in that buying universe. But with such data and um, audience advantages, I think the company from a strategic perspective is just really, really impressive.
0: They probably have and an incredible ability to know what's going to sell and who specifically even is going to buy it. Yeah. And get that in front of them. And that's
1: And I think, you know, when you're when you're a startup, it's good sometimes to read about what's worked for other people. And that often will let that inspire you, let that create new ideas for how you can do something. Mm-hmm. But just copying what other people do probably won't work. But I think reading about other success stories really can help you formulate new ideas, new paths, and new strategies.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, it helps kind of inspire you to be ambitious and take your own course. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I think we've learned a lot from this conversation. We'll be following. We'll be watching. Where should we go to keep up on what's the latest and greatest with Brex?
1: Sure. So I think for us, you know, as we talked about, keep your eyes open for our billboards (laughs) And, you know, we doubled down on that strategy, brought someone in-house to run it. And I would say, you know, we have, we produce a lot of great content for startups in the blog format. Um, So check out, you know, our blog. It's called The Log.
0: The Log. The Log. We'll be watching. All right. Awesome. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you, Tara. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.